Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Team Human is a labor of love. You can get the ad-free version as well as access to our live events, Discord server and monthly Team Human salons by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a chance to call upon our collective nervous system, develop a more profound capacity for compassion, bear witness to what is. We can't always be responsible for each other, but we can be responsible to each other. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, it's Team Human, another hour in the kibitz room. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Kibitz Room of Tuesday, December 12th, 2023. This is where the Team Human community gets together and talks about things. It's it's kind of half a, a Ask Me Anything, half Quaker meeting hall, and, and half something else, um, whatever we want to make of it. It's a chance to forge solidarity, to see what themes are occurring for us all, you know, this week or this month. And uh, if you want to uh, participate, you just raise your hand and we invite you up. You accept the invitation. Then you're on this little Discord stage. Um, People who are listening out in the world, if you want to participate in these conversations, just become a uh, paying subscriber to Team Human, and you'll be invited not only to the uh, ad-free RSS feed of the show, the Team Human team feed, but to this Discord and live events and other kinds of stuff. In terms of me, this has been a, a weird time. The Middle East conflict has been very upsetting for, for a lot of us, and the continued state violence on humans is, uh, I mean, it's always upsetting, but I mean, right now, I mean, if there's a silver lining to this, it's that this 
crisis is bringing the ongoing atrocities of states against people to the forefront. And uh, hopefully after this conflict is finished, which I hope it is someday, we'll apply the lens and the, the lenses that we're developing now to the many other atrocities around the world occurring simultaneously. In better news, I just got back from really my first international trip in a long while. I went to Japan to celebrate the publication of, of three of my books over there by a wonderful little company called Voyager that actually helped develop the CD-ROM, those first CD-ROM experiences we all had, well, those of us who were alive back in the early and mid-90s. And um, it was, you know, anytime you visit another culture, it's, it's another civilization, really. It's enlightening. I think one of the main things I was left with was that all the formality in Japanese culture, which I was actually really intimidated about participating in, you know, where you, you, everyone bows and the way they hand business cards and one person's business card is on top and you, you hand them with two hands and you take them with two hands and you read them and you can't put them in your pocket because that's kind of gross. You put it in a special little case and all these rituals and, and sort of establishment of status from the get-go. In a way, it's like a hard crunchy shell around a much softer experience. I found that once you get through that there, the lunches and dinners and meetings I had with people were actually, you know, way more intimate in many ways and relaxed and casual than a typical lunch or whatever that, that I have in the States. And maybe it's just my own neurotic pattern that got disrupted. But I feel like the status games and questions of who's superior to whom and who's asking what of whom kind of continue on in our conversations. They, they go on and on where the Japanese, they get it out of the way right at the beginning. This is this one's status. That's that one's status. This one's coming for this. That one's coming for that. And then once you're through that, you could just be. And I found myself just so relaxed in these meetings, in these conversations, in a, in a very different way than I experienced with anyone but but true friends, true family. So that was that was interesting. And, and I mean, a lot of a lot of stuff was interesting, but that was sort of one of my main takeaways. And maybe I want to try to bring some of that sensibility with me um, here. But I haven't met with anybody <laughs> since I got back, except this this is my first social event, our moment here together. So uh, let's begin. Joseph Siegel, you're up here. So uh, how are you doing? What's up? Hi, Douglas, Josh, and fellow humans. Boy, it's a it's a very emotionally turbulent time to be somebody who is very emotionally sensitive to people's pain around me and in the world. So I'm having to really focus myself on what I could do something about in my life and on, you know, self-care and and my family and just try and share moments of human connection and loving kindness with the people who I talk to on the phone when I'm straightening out a bill or the person who's making me a sandwich. And uh, I find that immensely gratifying, you know, enriching. So I have a request and a question. Um, my request is 
that everyone listening do our best to share a little more uh, love and tenderness with the people we encounter in our lives in this very difficult time that we're all going through. Just being open to that because people in general are really good people out there and everybody needs this. So that's my humble request. Now, my question, it seems to me that one of the last available real levers of power we have politically due to gerrymandering and money in politics is the ballot initiative process in a large number of U.S. states. Do you have any thoughts on how we can organize to put things like local currencies, which you've mentioned in your talks, and UBI with programmable digital expiring money so that it expires after a set period of time, forcing it to go into circulation, and it's localized into our communities, so it must be spent with our Main Street businesses. And that will increase the velocity of money, again, something you've eloquently spoken about, and help the bottom percentile to thrive. How can we organize around such efforts to put things on ballot initiatives or local, you know, city initiatives? There's really almost three different things, but let's start with the question, the number two and the levers of power and ballot initiatives. So you got ballot initiatives on the one hand, and then whether ballot initiatives will be a good way of helping get communities to experiment with UBI and local currencies and other things. Ballot initiatives are weird, right? They're, they're, they're great on a certain level, but you know my original experience with ballot initiatives were in uh, California, when they would do a ballot initiative saying auto insurance shouldn't cost more than this, and everyone votes, yes, it shouldn't. And it's like, okay, or America shouldn't fight wars. Okay, we're all going to vote for that. And then they're very tricky, people-driven mandates for government that don't often necessarily take into account how government works. They're They're tricky, and they suggest that we all know how to vote for all these things. They're wonderful on a certain level because, you know, Ohio can say, we don't want abortion to be illegal. We, we want the right so it can override a runaway state legislature from making laws that people don't want, you know, but they're tricky because they suggest a level of legislative education and articulacy among people that we may not have. It's sort of, that's what representative democracy was for. So other people can do it and we don't have to know the answer on everything. It's back to, you know, I don't know the best withdrawal strategy from Afghanistan. I don't know the best peace process for the Middle East. So I would feel weird about voting for them. You know, that said, could communities demand or ask for local currencies or local currency initiatives or various circular economic initiatives in their communities? Could a city do UBI? Could it work at the city level? Could it work at the local level? I don't know. I mean, UBI is usually thought of on a big scale. It's kind of the thing more, more like what a nation would do than a town. I did have someone in my little town of Hastings on Hudson saying, we should do UBI here and have the 30 or 40 wealthier families 
of this town have to give 20% of their money to the 50 percent of poor families here and let this all level out and just <laughs> you're gonna get the wealthy people are gonna move out of that town pretty fast if you ask to do it on that sort of scale it'd be really tricky but i do think the citizen council approach to uh, democracy can work what are actually this week's guest uh carney ross talks about that some. He's a, a was a disillusioned diplomat who looks at democratic process, some of what Extinction Rebellion looked at in their models, and what Standing Together looks at as their models of citizens' councils talking back up to government leadership. So that might work better than ballot initiatives, or maybe those kinds of groups would create ballot initiatives that then leaders would have to look at. But yeah, I mean, there's people who look at it more than I do. The folks at Polis, people like Mika Daigle, people at Liquid Democracy, there's real experts in it. And I do support alternative means of exercising democratic will because these you know once every four years popularity contests don't seem to work so well mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm, I'm really, I'm disillusioned by the process of government itself. I, I, I had a, uh, uh, let's call it a, a meditation experience, about a month ago. And I kept thinking about Samuel in the Bible. He's still coming to me. Samuel, the, the prophet of the Israelites in, in very early days. And he was kind of a priest, rabbi, leader, guy. But the people, they wanted a king because uh, everyone else had a king. So uh, Samuel, there's this great scene where Samuel goes to God and he's like weeping. He's apologizing to God because the people want a king. And he's saying, I failed you. I failed you. They want a king because he understood that politics is not the compassionate approach. It's not the internalized approach to people caring for each other. It's a whole other thing. And he's he's apologizing that he failed. And God says, it's okay. It's not your fault, Samuel. Just pick the tallest guy. And to me, that was the Bible's way of saying that this stuff doesn't matter. Just put a crown on some person 
and they're they're king, but it's not a real thing. It's this it's this really silly social construction that we do on the way to something else. But yeah, I love these ideas for UBI, and and they're just really hard to implement. We can't even implement a sensible tax code. You know, we have a tax code that's legislated by the wealthiest people in America to have the bottom ninety nine percent pay everything and the top 1% pay nothing. So I'm not optimistic about the ability to initiate something like UBI unless the ultra-rich realize that it's unsustainable the way it is and that UBI looks like an easier solution than, say, replacing us with AIs. Um, To your first point was the one that hit me deeper, this notion of self-care and and. It's really tricky when I could not get away with saying what you said. If I said, I'm traumatized by what's going on in the world and so sad about it and all the pain and I'm, 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 going to, I'm doing self-care, people would say, why the heck are you doing self-care? You're fine. You're, you've got heat. You've got food. You're not getting bombed and killed. Your baby's not being blown up. So it's, it's tricky. But yeah, I get it. It's traumatic. Who cares what people say? Got to get to that point too, of just being authentically you, and you know, like they say, setting boundaries. And you, you know, once I uh, was advocating on Facebook over a dozen years ago, just sharing things about how to experience more joy and awe and mm-hmm. happiness in life. Uh, and a woman replied with the most ferocious personal attack on me, accusing me, <laughs> lambasting me for demanding that she be happy. What right have I to demand that she be mm. happy? And at that point, I realized <laughs> that it doesn't matter what I say. <laughs> People are going to find a way to be unhappy about me and attack me because of where they're co- they are in life. And I just need to... To just be me and do what I feel is in my heart and it's who I am and why I'm here and not worry so much about what people are going to say about me. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, and that's why going to your second point in that statement is being nice, you know, and focusing on human connection and loving kindness ends up being the really the easiest path to self-care. It's tricky right but really what what the way i took what you were saying was that that self-care is care of others that self-care ultimately is a form of compassion and we don't realize in a world of tweets is that bearing witness really truly bearing witness to the trauma is a way of metabolizing it for and with people that it's our real job is true compassion you know and that's um i mean the buddhists talk about everyone talks about it but it's much harder than it looks but but where i've gotten to is sort of realizing that and to your point that self-care is not selfish care that you know (laughs) you're part of the tree and that being able to open up and truly experience what's going on being able to bear witness to the horror and speak to the horror and really see the difference between what to distinguish between what addresses it and what exacerbates it becomes our job and speaking out to that as you you know and speaking your truth which may not be someone else's truth and gets people upset in itself, but that's the job. But I agree. It's a matter of um, uh, 
It's, it's acting with loving kindness. And even as God was trying to tell Samuel, meeting the people where they are, you know, they need a king. All right, you give them a king. That's where they are right now. And, and have compassion for that rather than just being upset, which is hard, which is hard. I mean, especially right now, because we're, we're witnessing in starker reality, in starker terms than usual, the real horror of, of, you know, well, we could call it state actors on on human beings, but also um, the human actors on human beings, and it's tricky. But yeah, to open our eyes and see it for what it is is uh, does require it requires breathing, right? <laughs> Which is the beginning of self care. Get your feet on the ground and breathe, and um, and really be present. It's hard. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's a revolutionary thing to do. Yeah, I think you're right. Thank you, Douglas. Thank you. And thank you for being on Team Human, man. I, I feel you here for sure. Brenna, hey. This is kind of maybe tangentially related to what you were just talking about. But I've been thinking this week about deification because I think humanizing the people we disagree with gets some attention, but it's also become a real problem in the people that we do agree with. You were talking a little bit about tech bro deification in your last monologue mm. and also reckoning with your own persona being a little deified. And for me, I've been dealing with it in a very small way on a personal project this week. So I, I have this thing that I did for a few years. I did it on Facebook a couple of times. And then last year I did it on Twitter. And it's basically that around the holidays, I would do this little performance art piece that was just me going through everyone I follow and writing them a little personalized compliment. But uh -huh. I decided not to do it this year. It's really effortful, and I just didn't want to spend that time on social media. So I posted that I wasn't going to. And I got a message from an acquaintance who was upset about it. So I don't know what they were going through in the moment they sent it. You know, it's been an awful year for a lot of people, so I have empathy, but... It made me realize that their perception of me was that I'm some kind of magic compliment dispensing elf, you know, <laughs> not as a person with like limited energy and time. And that's hard to contend with because it's coming from a place of them liking what I'm doing. And now I feel less inclined to do it less in the future, you know, and, and that feels like part of a larger problem, especially because I think people are really missing out on how motivating it is to come from a place of assuming it's not special. So I'm a middle-class like Nepo baby. My dad's a musician and my mom is a romance author. So I've been very lucky to have met a lot of famous artists. And there's something that's like, there's a, a joy in like meeting your heroes and they've just spilled mustard on their shirt and they're truly stressing out about it. I'm not going to say who that was, but like finding out that someone's weird or or shy or impulsive, or even if they're jerks and now you don't like them so much is so great because if they're as messy as I am, it means that, that they have to put in effort to be great. And it means that all I have to do is put in the time. So I guess like my question is like, how do we foster that feeling that no one is inherently exceptional to kind of democratize that exceptional work? Yeah. Isn't that tricky? You know, a lot of, I think a lot of the problem, not to beat a dead horse here, a lot of the problem is capitalism, you know, and I don't know how, let's even call them this, but great artists and writers, whether they're 
personas became calcified in quite the same way, whether there was that same audience capture that happens. But I, I understand the phenomenon you're talking about and the difference between the meeting heroes that were human and meeting heroes that maintained their their heroism. You know, when I met Robert Anton Wilson and he's this kind of, you know, fat guy drinking beer in his garden apartment and sitting on you know lawn chairs and it was just so fucking real and i'm like oh man or i met lou reed with laurie anderson at a passover seder and they're both worrying about these two dogs that they brought with them and whether they're being getting the right they were like uh you know, like people are with their animals, and oh, you know, they're so they were so vulnerable uh, because they were so worried that their animals were in the right place and being and got to be on their laps during it. And it's like, oh wow, they're really just going nuts on that. Or I met John Cage, and all he wanted to talk about was that we were wearing the same sneakers, and he gave me this life advice that if you ever find shoes that fit really well in the store, buy two pairs, because by the time they wear out, the model will be gone. And <laughs> so that's what I got from John Cage, you know, not some crazy thing about music or uh, improvisation or the name, but it's freaking stuck with me, right? As as my John Cage lesson. And that's the thing. It's this, um, I hate to even use the kind of language, especially after how how well you articulated this, but, but the great ones don't act like great people. The great people are confident enough to be vulnerable, flawed, regular, weird humans. And yeah. it's a matter of, of giving them permission, but it's hard, you know, it's hard. So you take someone like a Taylor Swift when she's got, you know, a hundred trillion dollars and all that, that the size that she's at, it's almost impossible for this 33 year old woman to be normal. Everything is so <laughs> scrutinized. She's like the last person who lived like that was like um, princess Diana, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Take, so they end up taking on a different role. And I almost, I sit waiting anxiously for when it flips from hero worship to the the scapegoating that comes after any any messianic period like this. I worry for her on that level. But yeah, it's tricky. You know, that was why, I mean, I just started Substack now and I was afraid to go on Substack because I see the sort of audience capture that happens there. And like even Joseph was was warning me, don't worry so much about what other people say or think, just be. And it gets harder and harder at the larger scale that you do it. But we're all going to make mistakes and say things that people that people disagree with. You're going to disappoint your people <laughs> by not <laughs> doing your, your individual... <laughs> Greetings, you know, it's like, wow, boy, that that should be excusable, not just under the current conditions. It should always be, it should always be excusable, and that's you know, it's what what uh, Genesis Pierre used to talk about. That once you know sort of what your public image is, if you have it, then kill it and start another one. I don't want to kill; just it's a little violent. But I'm trying to let go of whatever the expectations I think I've, or I've imposed on myself or I've projected onto people who listen to me that, they, oh, they expect me to be this, is to let that go so I could be alive in this moment rather than recalling the old hits. It's hard though. 
It's hard. You know, really, that's what we're always asking is how do we just be alive right now? How do you be alive now and and move beyond our own uh, our own and others expectations? Yeah, it's a tough time. But I but I do think like people could be more like if people looked at at the work as being effortful, then they might choose to make an effort and and make that more even among everybody else. Hmm. I mean, if they looked at what you did, it's, oh, it actually takes time and energy to do it. Yeah. If they, if that lady said, oh, she's not doing it this year. Well, it must be effortful. Maybe I can spread some of that this year. <laughs> right. You know, like, cause anyone can give a compliment if they have a little bit of time. It's just depends on your energy level. I guess so. Right. It's like if you were making little cheesecakes for everybody on the holidays and you go this year, I'm just not going to make cheesecakes. Wait a minute, Britta. You're not making, where's my fucking cheesecake? I'm not going to. That, right. That what should occur to them is, well, could you send me the recipe and maybe I'll make some cheesecakes this year? Yeah. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a weird time. Yeah. It's a weird time. That only that's the theme of the of the that's what we'll call this episode. It's a weird time. <laughs> Except it's not, right? It is and it's not. It's just we're we're seeing this. We're seeing this now and that's what's making it feel weird i think we're witnessing something we we chose not to see before yeah Mm -hmm. we're tuned to something now yeah thanks thanks so monolith seeker i share your seeking hey i'm also seeking the monolith have you found (laughs) so the the crazy thing about that is that i i gave myself that name as like a podcast i was starting Uh and uh the the monolith i i found was just kind of the same message from everywhere i looked after a while so i stopped doing the podcast because i just kept saying the same thing over and over again so uh Uh, yeah that's that's the monolith i found was non-dualism and Mm -hmm. uh that's just just shakes at me everywhere i look (laughs) <laughs> Which um, is actually one of the things I wanted to bring up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is more of a lightning rod moment you gave me uh, in one of your just kind of an off comment you made in a in an interview recently. You were talking about the Sabbath, and you just kind of like real quick were like, "Well, that's kind of dualist, though. Like, how is that different than any other day of the week when you really think about it?" And that kind of hit me as like, like I said, a lightning rod moment because I I, I was raised Seventh Day Adventist. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that but yeah. it is a uh we we observe the sabbath as well as lo- as well as every other rule of christianity and judaism and as a kid it was really not fun but uh as i've been going over my spiritual journey you know as an adult into how i look at the world i've been trying to place the sabbath in my mind and your comments about how it's no different than the other day kind of hit me like dualism is how we learn things and how we incorporate things into, you know, the whole of everything. So if I take one day every week to live in the world that I want to live in as much as I can, whether that be community, like bringing my friends together, whether that be creating, whether that be, you know, actually resting because all of that other work is what I do for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. That just struck me so hard that like, yeah, I, I want to, if I want to change the world, if I want to see a new world, then I need to at least be setting aside one day a week to see how I can incorporate that world into my life every day. That just hit me really strongly. And, uh, you know, maybe this isn't very relevant. You can edit it out if you need to, but uh, I just wanted to see where you, what you think about that or, or if that does anything for you at all, because it, it definitely has changed the way I'm looking at things right now. No, it's totally relevant. It's totally relevant. And it's interesting. I mean, 
when I was saying the Sabbath is dualist, I, I wasn't necessarily trying to say, therefore, we shouldn't do it, right? I mean, just for, for other people listening, I wasn't saying, oh, it's dualist, therefore, we should dispose of it. If anything, what I was, what I was trying to say is that it's an intentional thing, that Sabbath is a social construction that we set aside one day. And on the one hand, it's not to say the rest of life isn't sacred. I mean, it is, but it's like the way we almost prove that we're human, the way we exercise intentionality is by setting apart the one day and saying, no, wait a minute. I'm sacred, we're all sacred, even if we're not working, even if we're not accomplishing anything, even if we're not consuming or producing or doing whatever it is you do in society, that you are, just the fact that you've arrived here as an incarnate being means that you're sacred, you're fine, that when we're together, we are sacred. And so what what you do is, is you do create a boundary condition in order to set it apart. Because I feel like, particularly now in the, in the age of AI, when AI will be able to work all the time, of course, they don't need a Sabbath. They don't need to know they're sacred. You know, <laughs> that in the age of AI, the only thing that does really necessarily separate or privilege humans from these uh, highly utilitarian technologies is intention, is faith itself, is that is to set apart a day to say, we are different. <laughs> we are alive. We are not machines. That there's something right. else going on here that we don't necessarily understand what that is. So the dualism is essential. Yeah, the creativity thing you just said really hits with me as well, because that's something I was really trying to incorporate into my version of the Sabbath is how much can I create? Because I, I do genuinely believe that the, the main difference between us and AI is that we experience the creation. It isn't just an output. It isn't just a product, a finished product. It's the whole process of learning something, being bad at it, trying to figure it out. And maybe AI is going through a version of that as well. Who knows? Like we can't really speak to whether or not large language models are experiencing anything, I guess. But to, to me, that process, even if it isn't something I want to show anybody, is so valuable. And, I, and that is like what I've tried to focus my, my Sabbath on, I guess, is the thing that makes me feel human, which is connectivity with my friends and family, creating music and, and art or whatever else it might be. And yeah, I, I love that so much. So thank you for speaking on that. Oh, sure. I mean, I found it really hard to do Sabbath, just like I found it really hard to like sit and do any kind of meditation because again, I mean, I had some kind of a social justice activist mindset that said that anything I do that is not specifically, actively, directly geared towards helping others or making the world a better place is some kind of privileged, self-indulgent distraction from the work at hand, you know, and that's, that's a dangerous place to go. I mean, I understand it was coming out of a good, a good sentiment, but it, it rendered me so incapable of actually doing anything for anybody. And, <laughs> and yeah. it disabled my nervous system from yeah. actively exercising compassion, from actively metabolizing that which was around me. And I've really learned to take lessons 
from from mushrooms in this, not just by eating mushrooms and thinking weird thoughts, but by looking at the way mushrooms work, the the sort of the mycelial connection between things, the way that they teach other species. It's a much more passive in a certain way than than what we normally think of as social justice activity. And it's not an invitation to be lazy or to sit back and just watch bad things happen to good people, but it is an invitation to occasionally pause, to reflect, to see how things are connected, and to experience this sacred pain. I mean, life is painful. Buddha got it. This pain and suffering is part of this thing. And to be able to open oneself up and experience compassion for that is not easy and it really does take this this sacred intentionality in order to do that and to um, as as some of the, a great medieval Jewish poet would say uh, to lessen the decree you you might not be able to change the event but you can change the way we collectively experience what's happening it's like uh, being a, a death doula a person that witnesses it sits with someone else when they pass they are doing something active even when they're silent even when they're Right. Even when they're not saying anything, I'm trying to study to become a death doula myself. Actually, so that's that's oh. uh, synchronistic that you would say that. Awesome, thank wow. you. Wow, please stay in touch. I mean, to me, yeah. I've I've done it not as a doula, but just as a witness, and it was the four times I've experienced it, it was the most profound sense of service I've ever had. And I wasn't even moving, you know, wow. it felt like not that just I was doing service, but it was what the Hebrew Bible. So funny. We're talking so much about that today. Uh, or I am. <laughs> it's what they would call a mitzvah. You know, it's a commandment and a blessing. It's the same thing. You know, the, right. it's this privilege to be the person who sits and bears witness to it. But boy, they are there up in you. They're, they're out. They're already almost in the, or in the coma state, but that's you. Something happens. Their nervous system, their soul is all up inside you. And you feel it there. It is just like, wow, this is, um, use me here. I don't know what I'm doing, but use it. I'm <laughs> go, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Like nothing else. Um, so yeah, Please keep in touch about that. I'd be very interested. As you develop, we should then do an episode about what, what that process is, because you're going to learn a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll do my best to stay in touch. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate All right. it. Thank you. All right. Who's that, MWL? I'm Dev. Uh, it's Michael Linton. Oh, hey. Open Money Development. Yeah. We, we talked, what, about 10 years ago about um, deli dollars and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you recall. Yes. But I, it's on the, the UB, the Universal Basic. Uh -huh. I, I've been recently thinking about islands as a sort of a generic distinction between those you care for because it makes sense, you know, because you're on the same bit. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the extended family is um, a difficult concept. Religious affiliations, for instance, different patterns, the band, the tribe. But to say we're all on the same island, you know, is um, a sort of simple distinction between on and off. And good manners on island implies the possibility of good manners off island. So I'm, I'm just, I just wanted to offer that, particularly in relation to the universal basic income process, which is utterly impossible 
with a national currency because that's the damn shit that made it made it that bad anyway, you know? Mm. So if you're gonna have any nature any culture of nurturing, I think an island is a good good concept to play with. I I, I buy that. I mean in in uh, throwing rocks at the Google bus, I talked a lot about bounded economies versus these infinite scalable ones, you know, the whole digital thing, there's one giant economy and you just want to become, you know, as scale up as big as possible. And I was arguing for, you know, back with the velocity of money that in order to create that kind of Dyson vacuum like circulation of currency, you need to have a boundary of some kind. And I was looking even at, at unions and credit unions as even if they're not local as ways to create some boundary condition, not exclusivity, but a boundary. And the island certainly is. I know uh, Vicky Robin, who's written a bunch on on this. She was writing about this stuff in the 70s before we even knew what currencies were. She lives on this island up near Seattle called like Whidbey Island. These are Mm -hmm. these little islands. And I think she was looking at how could could she enlist the people of the island in some programs of mutual aid? uh, Because there is that almost natural tribal association it's it's sort of resonance inside a space it's like you know how many people to fill the room to have a good dance yeah and that's that balance between sort of signal and response uh, that i i think works well in smaller communities with a high velocity of interaction because you you, you got to be in the give and get experience that's the thing. You have to be in the get and get thing. It's some of these, um, you know, the early digital community workspace things would put up a whiteboard that they would have mm-hmm. these like two things they would put like I have and I need. Mm-hmm. And just you would, if you had something that you could offer, you'd put it on one side. And if you needed something from the community, you'd put it on the other. And it would be like this little sort of matchmaking games. Like I need someone who can code CSS and someone else needs a, I need a toaster oven. And you just would give and get that way. And again, it's like if the community is small enough, then people feel much more likely to get back something for the things they've given, you know, than when it's yeah. giant. Yeah, it's reassuring. It uh, it confirms there's a degree of um, fulfillment in the in the cycle. Whereas if you're trying to participate in a sort of an anonymous citywide currency with 5 million participants, it's it's a whole different deal. It's a slush. It is. And it's like the blockchain that we wanted to believe it could, you know, you could calculate it with a blockchain. We could have a global island, a global give and get, but it just doesn't quite work. It's like it's so big, it neutralizes the thing. And that's back to, you know, Tower of Babel. If we want to get, let's make today Bible Day. Tower of Babel was really that. They were trying to create, you know, a debabelizer for the whole thing of everyone speak one language in one giant thing, and it's smashed to the ground, or God smashes. It just doesn't, you can't that's not the way to get there. <laughs> They're bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger things, which is why I've always had problems with the nation state compared yeah. to city states and communities. Nation state just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Then, you know, people are talking about state violence right now, which we're witnessing. The state is inherently violent. It's an, <laughs> the creation of the state is an act of violence um, to begin with. Yeah, uh, highly weaponized. Right. Democracy is a, is a method of war, in a sense. Right. Military industrial complex, that whole show. Yeah. 
you, yeah. you get the protection you pay for through your taxes. <laughs> yeah. But thank you. Yeah, if you don't, though, if you're on a little island, I mean, very often you still end up having to pay protection to your local gang, you know? <laughs> and you, Yeah, there can be um, violence in all those places. But essentially, if the island's going to work effectively, it's by efficient interplay rather than coercive domination systems. So Right. And then everybody on the island base, it be, either is or becomes indigenous, right? They're all members at that point. Mm-hmm. They're all landed in that way. And then when you're on an island and you see the boundary, you also are much more likely to treat your um, environment and resources as a commons rather than infinitely extractable. So it also engenders engenders that. But um, we're not, I mean, most of us are not on islands, but I think you're right that we can create these boundary conditions in one way or another. You know, when you talked about the connectivity and the, the resonance thing, it's it's not by being inside a tin can. Mm. It's more like the mushroom thing, the connectivity, the, the resonance along channels of affinities. You know? Right. So these nests, networks can spread out and cross over each other and merge with and maintain distinction because they're right. not contained, they're attracted. Mm. It's, it's sort of like Schmachtenberg talks about things that are alluring, that are drawn together by their affinities. Right. And if we didn't have that alluringness, they, they just scatter and become en- en- empty, you know? So. Right, that is nice. So they're bound almost through, through actively and energetically rather than because mm-hmm. they're fenced in. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's it's an internal construct. It's self-directed locus. It's not imposed upon. Wow. You mean it's almost like love or something? Hey. <laughs> love is all around us. It must be the season of the year. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. All right. Stay in touch. Uh, who do we got? Oh, my gosh. It's the jellyfish conspiracy. They're here. They finally made it. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. I wanted to talk about uh, something you mentioned at the end of your last kibitz podcast and um it was near the very end you just mentioned you were thinking of things in terms of addiction and in terms of the uh, human situation Mm. and looking at alcoholics anonymous and the 12 steps program as a way to deal with the human addiction and then you're wondering what is the the kind of global human addiction to and you mentioned Western civilization at the end. And I was like, bingo, because that's kind of where my thinking has landed a long time. I've been thinking along the same lines about addiction and, and in terms of human addiction. And um, there's uh, a couple other things that were that were close to it, or kind of runner ups that I wanted to mention that are possibilities. But um, one is. Um, the self, addiction to the self and the self-importance, which ends up in the extreme is grandiosity and narcissism. And another one is acquisition. Are we possessed by all our possessions? Mm. I think that's a, a part of it as I'm thinking about it. But what I call, what you were calling Western civilization, I think of as the cult of empire. And um, I think it's an addiction to this to the cult and that the empire, the Roman empire never ended as Philip K. Dick said, it became the British and American empires and all Western empires are based on the same format. So, but it's a nested 
or fractal empire. So it's not just the outside empire, but it's a it's also an inside job if you break it down. It starts if we look at the USA, it's composed of states, and those states are composed of counties. Each of those are nested empires. The, then you have the city and towns. You have local communities and neighborhoods. These are all kind of modeled on empire. And, and in the end, you have your house, your whatever you live in. For me, I've got a house on a junior acre. And I never understood it when I was younger and got into this house, how busy it would keep me after I retired. I thought I would have plenty of time when I retired to do different things, gardening and uh, hobbies and so forth. But I find my <laughs> empire maintenance is a full-time job. And, and how, how can people deal with like keeping up and, and trying to deal with problems of world empire when we have our little empires to take up most of our time? So that's become a big question. And then, Actually, it goes into into the body. The body is ruled by usually the mind in most people. So it's kind of like a little empire with trillions of organisms. And we think, you know, that the mind or ego is ruling the whole empire when it really isn't. That's where I landed for a while. And then I went a step further. And I think the main human addiction is addiction to um, it's within the context of the big mass. So there's a big mass. And, oh, yeah, we're addicted to our kind of thinking. It's it's um, Nora Bateson calls it industrialized thinking. I think of it as problem-solving consciousness. So mm. if you think of how this big mess developed, it was developed by problem-solving consciousness. That's how civilization developed. That's how uh, science developed. All about looking at things and kind of a narrow focus and solving each problem as it came along. And most of the time, when you solve a narrow problem, it results in other, you know, other problems, creates other problems or entangles you in other problems because everything is not just a single problem. Like Nora Bateson keeps talking about this, that you can't just look at, you know, healthcare and just say it's a single problem to solve. And so, yeah, that's where I got to the point of, Yet once we figure out the problem, we might not have a means to solve it because all of our means are based on previous habits and formulations of problem solving that are ingrained so deeply in us that we we can't get out of those boxes to see other possibilities. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, you know, I often talk about techno solutionism because, you know, technology and media are my field, but techno solutionism is just a particular kind of solutionism, right? <laughs> and it's the solutionism itself ends up being the problem because your today's solutions are just tomorrow's problems that then have to get solved. The, the, the app on your cell phone that made you crazy, then you have another app to try to make you uncrazy and a, another app for that and so on and so on. And, and, mm -hmm. and all of these, all of these problems are, you know, are solved with new acquisitions. And we always think, you know, just one more 
just one more thing, just or one more app mm-hmm. or one more pill added to my stack, and then I'll be done, right? One more piece of property, one more item, one more, you know, next week, I promise you, but Thursday, I'm going to do it for the last time. Then next week, I'm going to start this new this new whatever. And it really does always has to start right now. There is no one more. There is no, you know, I've tried, you know, in, in the things that that I'm addicted to, which is, you know, uh, maybe one more article, one more talk that I don't want to do, one more this, one more that. And they always create more stuff. I mean, and it's okay in a super duper crisis. I think I've talked about this before. My my chiropractor who I had on the show once before, before he passed, uh, uh, Mark Filippi, used to talk about this time, the meantime, and next time, right? So, all right, well, you take the pill this time because you're really sick, but then in the meantime, you're going to change your diet and your gut biome so that next time you don't have to take this radical crisis intervention approach to things. And that's it. That's the way Western civilization works. It's one big crisis uh, one big crisis intervention. You know, I was listening to you talk about your house and how your house keeps you busy. Well, yeah, it keeps you busy by design. That was even if you look at the the letters of the Levitt brothers who built Levittown, their letters and communications with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration. They said these little houses will take up the guy's time, the the household, you know, the father's time, so that they won't form unions, so that they won't get drunk, they they won't <laughs> they won't act up. These poor guys who just returned from the war with various PTSD and mental illness, they're they're not going to have time to get into trouble because they got to mow the lawn and take care of this tree and fix the garage. Don't worry, we we did all that. So the addictions built in, you know, they they the system wants us to be addicted to this problem-solving consciousness as you put it, this this industrialized thinking, this just one more, just one more, just one more until you're so tired that you eventually that you just get sick and die. And it's all dependent, I I would agree. I mean, I called it western civilization. I mean, you were calling it the self. I do agree. It's all dependent on a culture of individualism where you are in this, uh, you have to take care of your own retirement. You have to take care of your own family. You have to take care of your own house as if borrowing and sharing and depending is a form of weakness rather than the form of strength. You know, it's always boundary conditions, nation states and the wrong kind of boundary conditions. I mean, not the boundaries that are are naturally formed through attraction, as we just heard, but rather uh, boundaries that are artificially created by those who would control us. But it's up to us at that point to get out of the addiction. And that's why I was looking at 12 steps. Not that you got to follow these 12 steps. It's a little bit like the uh, sustainable development goals of the UN. Okay, this, then that, then this. But the gist of AA is this surrender and you surrender in the context of a small community, a small voluntary anarchic community that you believe that some power greater than yourself can help restore you to sanity, right? You admit you have a problem mm-hmm. and you surrender to this uh, greater power, which could just be the other people, the group that you're with. And then you start making amends, which is the harder part right, right, when you can. But yeah, and then spread, <laughs> share Share the share the wisdom when you get there, but it's tricky, right? It's a tricky thing to do, and we can even look at that saying, "Oh, so you think twelve steps is the next way to solve the problem?" It's like, no, it's right. a little different. Yeah, 
because it gets circular. Yeah, I was just thinking that and basically uh, applied for this form data lab. And that was my next big thing. And the way you were talking about it is so perfect because I do jump from thing to thing. And now it's like, is warm data another thing to jump to? That's a question, but it doesn't seem like it's solution oriented. So it feels like it's a, on another order. I think the solution has to be a different order solution than what we're dealing with. Right. And I think it comes certainly if you're going to work with Nora Bates and it will, it will start turning into a, a sensibility where you do things for their own sake without worrying what effect they will have, you know, that they're, they're not causes to particular effects, but things that are right in themselves. And they kind of more, more resonate their value rather than impose their value. So their effects end up being much more subtle. There's a delightful lack of deliberateness in it. It's really hard to surrender to right now when it feels so incumbent upon us to actually do something to solve these problems. People are dying. But even then, there's not, as Taylor Swift would say, band-aids don't, don't fix bullet holes, right? There's something else. There's something else we're being called upon um, to do. And it's starting to feel now or never that we actually do uh, liberate's too strong a word. We move beyond this way of thinking about about stuff and acting. So we'll see. But yeah, I wish you luck in this in, in, um, with Nora. I haven't done like a one-day warm data lab, and I'm wondering what it's like to do that for a sustained period of time. So um, do report back when you're in it. Yes, I'll check in on Discord too. Um, as you were talking also, I realized the internet is, is the home of so much more distractions and, and so many more possibilities. So it's like, it's endless the number of things you can do. Yeah, to keep yourself going, to possess, you know, more ideas, more techniques, problem solving. Yeah. And also the internet structurally, this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. I'm not anti-net. I'm pro-net, but we mm -hmm. have to realize that using the net is a bit like using jet fuel and not in that it's that polluting, although it is that polluting, but it doesn't really do the thing, right? We are not connected as if through a mycelial network. We are connected through a big, bad, artificial, digital, binary network of wires. And some of us, and I, I don't think I was that guilty of this. I, I actually argued this in like 1995. But a lot of us felt that the internet was the wiring of the human organism to be the networked consciousness for Gaia. And I always saw the internet as a test run, as a way to practice that, as training wheels for becoming Gaia's a conscious nervous system, but it's something that we do through something much more like um, death doulaing and dancing and, and live contact and uh, something much more mycelial than digital. That this is not the thing. I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we have a kibitz room. I'm glad we can do this. But I'm pretty sure everybody who comes into this kibitz room and knows that we're going to have this interaction is saying, "Yes, I'm going to consciously compensate for the fact." that this is digital. I'm going to stay aware that these are parasocial relationships right now. I'm going to remain aware that my mirror neurons are not going to fire. I'm not going to get the same oxytocin level. I'm not going to be able to bond with these people in quite the same way. And I've got to be 
aware. I was going to say on guard, but that was too, that's too strong. I've got to be aware and slightly cautious and trepidatious and extra gentle mm. and, and, and in these spaces. Um, and then try to take the language and words and ideas, which are all super abstract that happen in a place like this, and then bring them um, into the real world with real people rather than just, uh, rather than just here. Because nothing happens here. Right, nothing actually happens here. There's well something, but it's certainly not the same, and it's characterized by these little bits. And it's it's a tool, and it's fine, and I'm glad we have it. But it's a temporary substitute, stand-in marker, ritualized version of something that we can only do, you know, with other people in our genuine local reality. But it's certainly better than nothing, right? I mean, boy, the team human lives that we did—that one we did with. Um, Mitch Horowitz last month or the month before in uh, in New York. I don't even know what we talked about. Just being in the room with people um, was so delightful. It was a weird peak experience. Well, now it is, especially post-COVID. Oh my God, I'm in a room with other mm-hmm. bodies. But you experience those nervous systems on a such a profound level. Those other souls, you can feel it. Was he talking about magic? Was he? Yeah. Yeah, we talked about magic. Okay. I actually used that uh, before I started because I felt really unprepared. So I promised I would prepare myself four times afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Well, clearly you did. Um, but don't forget to do it. Yeah. Excellent. Right. You could do a little retro causality here. All right. Right. That's the deal. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's all listen to this episode in a way that makes sure it makes sense to us. So that hopefully it'll make sense to others. I'm not sure what sense we made, but hopefully uh, there's some good team human meat in there for the rest of our community to chew on. So thank you. Thanks for sharing. The, the conspiracy continues. So let me say thank you, everybody, for coming to the Kibitz Room today. It's a privilege to be with you. And here is a privilege of being a, uh, a contributing member of the Team Human community, which anybody can do by uh, going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. And if you can't afford that, email, and we'll try to figure something out so that you can participate in these. You can always ask a question through you know the Patreon or, or another uh, our team at teamhuman.fm email and we'll try to get to you too so thanks for listening listening is participation so i wouldn't mean to suggest that you're not participating which you are so thanks for being there thanks for being on team human team human is produced by joshua chapdelin and edited by luke robert mason i'm douglas rushkoff and you've been on team human our last best hope for peeps
even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.